0: If you have a copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 5. We are continuing on in the series that we titled, We See Jesus. We're in Hebrews chapter 5, and we're picking up where we left off last week. We're looking at verses 11 down to chapter 6, verse 3. Hebrews five eleven to 6, verse 3. And I'm going to start back for the sake of context in Hebrews 5, verse 7 for us this morning to lead us into this. But before we do read God's word, let's pray. Let's ask him together as a congregation to bless the preaching and the hearing of his word together. Let's pray. Our Father, our hearts are often prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And so we do ask that you would take our hearts and seal them for your courts above. We pray, O God, that you would establish our hearts, that we would find in Jesus Christ this morning an anchor for our souls. We pray that you would send your spirit to be present in this place, working in the hearts and the minds of all of us who are gathered here to worship you. Father, we ask that we would know in the preaching of the word that life-giving grace and that life-sustaining grace and that life-persevering grace that we so desperately need. We ask that you would help us to see and to hear the Lord Jesus this morning, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. The writer has introduced for us the idea of Jesus as our high priest, the great high priest who has gone into the heavens. It would help if I had my mic on. The great high priest who has gone into the heavens for us. He has gone before us. He is the forerunner. He has entered through his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection. He has passed through the heavens. And now the writer is reminding us of his suffering as priest. And he says in the days of his flesh... About this, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, and there I think he means baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and this we will do. If God permits, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, I don't know if it was true only for me as a young man preparing for ministry, but it seemed in the early days when people learned that I was going to seminary and that I wanted to go into pastoral ministry, everybody had a piece of advice for me and everybody was ready to tell me what they thought I needed to do once I got into ministry. And one of the ones that just sticks out in my mind more than all the others, I I was teaching at a church very regularly, and an elderly man who had probably been in the Navy came up to me, and he would say after the lessons that he appreciated it, and then he would use what, in philosophical terms, is called Occam's Razor, but you'll know it by the acronym KISS, and I'm going to say a word that the children shouldn't copy, keep it simple, stupid. And he would say to me every week, keep it simple, stupid. And, I, and he put the emphasis on the last word. <laughs> he always, I, I finally came to a point because he'd remind me every week and finally came to a point where I realized he really just wanted to put the emphasis on the last word <laughs> when he told me that. And I think that's interesting because there are actually quite a lot of people in the Christian church who think that it's actually pious and virtuous to water down the truth, not to go too deep. Occam's razor, by the way, is don't complicate things. Keep everything very surfacy. There's, there's a beauty in simplicity. There's a beauty in breaking down the truth. There is not a beauty in watering down the truth. And sadly, what so many have adopted as a pious thing, as a noble thing, the writer of Hebrews actually says is something that should be reproved. It's something that Christians need to understand is not virtuous. It's not good for Christians to remain babes spiritually and for their knowledge to remain small intellectually. That's not a good thing. It's not saying that there are not times, and we'll get to this in the sermon, there's certainly times newer Christians need to be brought along, they don't need to be overwhelmed, but the writer of Hebrews is writing to those who should have known more. They had been in the church a while. They they were adult Christians. They had come from A Jewish background. They knew the Old Testament. They revered it. They revered the Bible. They understood the sacrificial system. They understood the priesthood. They understood the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical priesthood. And they understood about Moses and Joshua. And we know that because the writers told them all about that in telling us that Jesus is better than all that. And that in the coming of Jesus, all of that served its purpose and passed away. And Jesus was found alone and Jesus was found better. And the writer of Hebrews has been constantly telling us that the surest way for you to persevere is to know and believe and abide in the fact that Jesus is better. And that the way you will end up making it across the finish line is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, to run with endurance the race set before you, looking unto Jesus. And here... In chapter 5, as he's introduced for us one of the greatest subjects of this book, how Melchizedek, this mysterious figure in Genesis 14, that if you read this short little account, Abraham's come back from defeating this king, Shedelaomer, and he's brought back Lot and all of Lot's possessions, and he's brought back the king of Sodom, and he's brought back all the wives and all the people and all the goods, and then here's this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. And he shows up in a couple verses in the Bible. But he's so important, he resurfaces in Psalm 110, and then we find an enormous exposition of this man, Melchizedek, throughout this book. And I think if we read Genesis 14, many of us would have to admit that we would have no idea why Melchizedek was there if we didn't have the book of Hebrews. And the writer is telling us, not only is Melchizedek not necessary, not only is the mystery and the depth and the wisdom of what God was doing by raising up this priest who existed long before he established a priesthood, he was the first priest in the Bible, and, and God intricately prepared all of that so that we, living in the new covenant, would understand something about Jesus's betterness, that he's the better priest, that he's the great high priest, And it's interesting, and I'll say this here, that Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews will tell us later, was greater than Abraham. Now, nobody is greater than Abraham, except for Jesus, but Melchizedek was. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and the writer of Hebrews will say that the greater blesses the lesser. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and now Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, He is the greatest of the great high priest. He is the superlative high priest. He is the eternal high priest. And notice the writer is is itching to bring the depths of these things to bear on the hearers. And notice what he says in verse 10, being designated by God, Jesus designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say. Of whom we have much to say. He's telling them, I'm about to take you into the depths. I'm about to give you the deepest things in the scriptures, and there's so much, and they're so deep. And then he stops and he says, but you're not ready. You know, as I read the Bible, I often think about all all the party fouls the writers of scripture make in light of our rules today. If I said to you, I'm ready this morning to tell you all about this intricately amazing and wonderfully deep thing about Jesus, but you're not ready. You would probably get rid of me. But the writer of Hebrews loved the Hebrews, and he loved them enough to tell them they had become dull of hearing, they should have known better, They should have understood these things instead of being tempted away from Christ back to Judaism. They should have been established by what they should have understood from the Old Testament. And notice what he says. He says in verse 11, essentially, that you you have need to become awakened spiritually. Notice he says you become dull of hearing. It's a needed reproof. Now, it's hard to tell when someone's become dull of hearing. Sometimes people can play the part so well. Many experiences when they were younger Christians, vibrant, the heart begins to grow dull, Bible reading slips away, not that much interest anymore, and yet people can play the part. They can play the part, they can talk the talk, but in their hearts there's a dullness. In their hearts there's A Shallowness really it's a warning against shallowness. It's a biblical warning against shallowness of heart and what the writer of Hebrews is saying is the surest way for you to apostatize the surest way for you to turn away from Christ is to continue with a dull uninterested heart in the things of God. It's the surest way you know some people will sometimes say and I've had people say this to me you know in other countries they don't have the luxury of studying theology. They're being persecuted. They don't have that luxury. Let me tell you this right now. It is not a luxury to study theology and doctrine, to know the scriptures carefully. Your eternal well-being depends on it. The writer of Hebrews, far from saying it's going to be a luxury, is going to say it is an absolute necessity if you're going to be anchored, grounded, and not moved away from the hope of Jesus Christ. And that the things about Melchizedek were necessary for them to know and for us to know if we're not going to depart from Jesus And so we can't just pass it off and say, well, you know, that's not my forte. That's not my thing. God, wires some people to like that? I don't like to read that much. Um, Notice what he says. You've become dull of hearing. And then in verse 12, by this time, and obviously he's speaking to those who have been Christians for some time, by this time you ought to be teachers. Now let me say two things. He is not saying there's never a time for basic, introductory, foundational-level gospel teaching. He's not saying that. In fact, he's presupposing that the goal of the congregation is that men and women grow deep themselves. They go down deep themselves. They go down into the depths of the things of Jesus Christ so that as people are converted, as we see people added to the visible church, that there are men and women in the church to disciple them. That's God's plan. He's not talking... About pastors, he's not talking about those who are in professional Christian ministry. He's talking about the the normal course in a church is that all of us would grow onto maturity in such a way that we would be seeking to teach others. You know, there's a beautiful picture of this in Acts chapter 18. There's a guy named Apollos, and Apollos, we're told, is mighty in the Scriptures. He is a he is a ten talent man. And he is out preaching everywhere. He's going through Ephesus. He is an itinerant evangelist, and he's mighty in the scriptures, and he's preaching, and a tent-making couple named Aquila and Priscilla hear him, and they praise God for him, and they pull him aside, and they teach him more accurately in the ways of God. And what Luke is telling us there is that An ordinary couple, a tent-making couple in the church who had matured, who were not dull of hearing, who had spent much time with the Apostle Paul, who had gone down deep, were being used by God to bring along even a zealous, scripture-filled, powerfully gifted minister. And you see something of the wisdom that God uses. He uses people in his church to teach one another. And notice that he says to them, he says, By this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You know, one of the fears I have in pastoral ministry, it's true of any minister of the gospel, is that I could spend decades preaching to people and then ask them basic truths and they don't know them. And you know what? That's a serious, serious problem. That's a serious, serious problem. You know, as much as we need evangelism, as much as God calls the church to evangelize, God calls his saints to be equipped and deepened, that their roots would go down deep and that they would grow deeply in the knowledge of his word and the rich, deep things of Jesus Christ. And so there's there's a false dilemma sometimes when people say, well, but... All I want is the simple gospel. That's all I want. Just give me the simple gospel because that's all I need to be saved. And they ask questions like, what is the least I need to know to be saved? And in doing that, they are pitting in their own minds faith and knowledge against each other. Notice J. Gretchen Machen, one of the great fathers of American Presbyterianism, says, Childlike simplicity of faith is marred sometimes by ignorance, but never by knowledge. Oh, if I could ask you to write that down. Let me read that again. Childlike simplicity of faith is marred sometimes by ignorance, but never by knowledge. Never by knowledge. And he's talking about knowledge of the scriptures. It will never be marred and has never been marred in the lives of the great theologians by the blessed knowledge of God and the Savior Jesus Christ, which is contained in the word of God. Without that knowledge, we might be tempted to trust partly in ourselves, but with it we trust wholly to God. The more we know of God, the more unreservedly we trust him. The greater be our progress in theology, the simpler and more childlike ought to be our faith. You see what he's saying? Instead of looking at any growth in knowledge as that will automatically lead to pride, because that's not what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, knowledge without love puffs up, but knowledge with love edifies. And what Machen's saying is, the more you know of God and the more you're grounded in Jesus Christ, the more you ought to find yourself trusting in him. And I'll tell you what, when I think of my own heart and the temptations in every direction, and I meditate on some of the truths in this book and the truths about Melchizedek, that becomes for me an anchor to my soul. And the more nuances and the more details you know and you see more in- intricately the wisdom of God in, in, in what he's revealed in scriptures and you see the depths of Jesus, the more you are drawn to Jesus and the less you are drawn away from Jesus. And it doesn't make any sense why we've written that off. It makes no sense why in our day we have written that off. We have parroted things that are not true. We have caught cliches and statements that are not biblical. And when we come to a passage like this, which many churches would just skip over, I'd have you know, we are drawn back to see that God wants his people growing, growing in your understanding and knowledge of his truth about his son in the scriptures. And notice what he says. Now he brings out this contrast. He says... You have need of milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a babe, literally. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I don't know if any of you watched cartoons when you were young. There was a uh, cartoon about um, a uh, 35-year-old man, bunny baby, and it was, came out in 1954, so it's old. It's not new. And he looked like a baby. He smoked a cigar. You've probably seen this before. And he's always trying to get what he stole from the bank back from Bugs Bunny, and so he dressed up like a baby trying to trick Bugs Bunny. And there was something ludicrous about that, and that's exactly what the writer's saying. If you are not growing, if you have become dull of hearing, you are precisely like that. Spiritually, you look like a 35-year-old baby. And there's something so warped about that, and not right. And and nature itself tells us that, that when infants are infants, they drink liquid diets, they drink milk, and when you grow, you eat solid food. And so in the Christian life, it's basic, it's simple. As you grow, you eat more substantive food, and you keep eating substantive food, and you don't revert back. Because to revert back means that you're not growing anymore. And so the writer uses this illustration, and And notice what he says in verse 13. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Why would we ever, if we are Christians, want to be unskilled in the word of righteousness? Why would we ever not want to know everything we can know from the scriptures for the well-being of our soul and the well-being of others that we're called to teach? And so the writer brings this reproof. Now, I want to say this. I think the reason for a dull dull hearing is a dull heart. The reason for a dull mind is a dull heart. The reason people don't want to listen is because their hearts don't want to learn. William Still, I love this quote, he says, The heart is the key to the mind. You know, people always pit heart and mind, by the way. I hear this repeatedly. It's not all about here. It's about here. No, it's about here and here. And the heart is the key to the mind. And when God gives you a heart that hungers after him, you'll use your mind to grow deep in the things of Christ. And if you're not, there's something wrong with the heart. An unwilling mind is driven by an unwilling heart. An unwilling mind. You know, I know that's true for me. Now, The goal is, if that's true in your life at times, that you have to own that. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to say, you know, I don't have the interest in the things of the Lord that I should. I'd rather be doing a thousand other things than sitting and meditating and reading. And until we own it and until we admit that we have dull hearts, we'll never grow in having hearts that are fervent and minds that are fervent. In growing in the knowledge of God. Well, notice secondly that the writer carries on now and he, he says that there is spiritual maturity to be gained. Notice what he says in verse 14. Solid food is for the mature. The goal is always maturity. The goal is always growth. There is, there is no such thing as a Christian that stays where he or she is. There's no such thing. Every Christian is either backsliding and declining or growing. There's no such thing as staying in one place. That is an absolute impossibility. You are either backsliding or you are growing. And so the writer's going to say, listen, the goal is maturity. The goal is feeding your souls, feeding your minds, feeding on Jesus Christ, feeding on the deep things of Jesus so that you grow as a mature Christian, so that you become an adult. You know, when I look at my boys and I see the fun they have and the things they laugh at, and I think about all the things I laughed at and all of the silliness of childhood and then you think about the responsibilities of life. You can't remain carefree. You can't remain carefree and silly when you're an adult. You have to work. You have to grow up. You have to mature. It's what it means to be an adult. You put away childish things, Paul says. It doesn't mean you don't have fun It means that you realize the seriousness of life and the seriousness with with which you give yourself to that. And so the writer is now exhorting us to spiritual maturity. And he says, listen, if you are maturing in Christ, you'll be maturing on the meat of his word. And you'll be having the powers of discernment trained to distinguish good from evil. Now, this is where it gets difficult. Because... He's been talking about Jesus. He's been talking about how Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he's saying you should not just remain in the basic things of Jesus, the basic introductory things of the gospel, but you should go on in the perfections and depths of Jesus. We'll come to that in a second. But here he says... In verse 14, that as you feed on the good and deep things of God's word, that your, your senses are exercised to discern between good and evil. Why does he introduce discerning between good and evil? That sounds moralistic. Well, I thought it was about Jesus and the Gospels. Now he's talking about good and evil. And here's, I think, the solution. Everybody that departs from Jesus does so because they don't call evil evil and they don't pursue the good for what it is. They embrace sin that God has called sin, and they depart from Jesus. You know, this week, at another sad moment when a man very close to me told me in so many words that he has departed from the faith to choose a sinful lifestyle. One of my best friends in the world. A man that knows as much theology as I know, who taught me much of the theology I know, has chosen to embrace sin and wickedness because he's given up, and I believe if you went back over the last four years of his life and looked, he had given up a solid diet of the food of God's word. I noticed a decline as I look back. It's easy to see it as I look back. It's easy as I trace back conversations and times I visited him to see that. And... He is departing from Jesus because he has given up feeding himself on calling evil, evil and good, good. And when we don't recognize sin for what it is in our life, then we're not going to go to the priest who deals with that sin. That's the reality. It's not so that you will try to be good enough and and just always try to do the right thing and just try to be better than other people. It's that you would do the right thing because Christ has redeemed you. And when you fail, you would go back to your priest and you would acknowledge the more we read the scriptures, the more we understand what pleases God and what displeases God. And listen to me very carefully. If you are going to go to heaven, you have to get that. Because if you falter there, you're putting yourself in a dangerous place And the writer's going to pick up on this in chapter six of those who ultimately have fallen away, who ultimately were not Christians, who had experiences and made professions and thought that they were Christians and thought they were going to heaven, and they walked away from the faith just like my friend's doing, just like the man who baptized me is doing and has done. And so we need to give ourselves to the most serious attention of what the writer's saying here that we must ground ourselves in the Word. You know, I've never met a Christian who acknowledges their own weaknesses, their own struggles with sin, their own um, fears, and even sometimes uh, shaken assurance, yet who are in the Scriptures fervently, who do not come out and thrive and grow and bless others and help others. I've never, ever, 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 ever met a Christian who acknowledging all their weaknesses and yet feeding on the solid food of God has turned away ultimately from God. I don't, I I think God has said, here's the surest way for you to persevere, be feeding on the steak. Who doesn't want Who doesn't want the best, most substantive food God has to give you? The things of Melchizedek, the the more nuanced and complex things in the Bible, the things that are teaching us the depths of Jesus are for the good of our souls. And so notice, notice now that he develops this call to maturity, and he basically says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's not saying, let's turn away from Christ. He's saying, Jesus is infinitely deep and wise and glorious and lovely. And Paul will say, oh, the depths and the riches, the length and breadth and width and height of the love of Christ, the unsearchable riches of Jesus, the unsearchable riches. And he'll say, let's move on from the basic introductory things that always have to be there and let's build on them. Let's build on them. Some will say, well, I've come to Jesus. I've trusted in Jesus. Are you trusting in him now? Are you repenting now? Are you feeding on him now? Are you seeking to know him deeply now, now, today? Are you deeply giving yourselves to going on to the deep things of Christ in spiritual maturity I want to just briefly talk about the things that he sets out because he sets out a list of things that sometimes confuse people. He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works or faith to God. What he's saying is, don't just think about conversion. Don't just think about the need to be converted from an unbeliever to a believer. That's foundational. That has to happen in your life, but don't keep just going back to that and that's all you think about and that's all you understand. And don't only think about and... and Talk about the theology of baptism, and here he uses baptisms, plural. I think he's talking about water baptism and spirit baptism and the distinction. You should know that. That's that's foundational. That's foundational. If we don't know that, we're not even on the foundation. And then he says the laying on of hands. I think that might be a reference to new converts receiving the gifts of the Spirit in the early church when the church laid hands on them or on ordination of ministers. And then he says, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. All of those things we should know. All of those things we should love to talk about, think about, but we cannot stop there. We cannot have just the apostles' creed of Christianity, if I can say that. If your Christianity is merely the apostles' creed of Christianity, the writer of Hebrews would rebuke you with this church. He would rebuke us if that's merely all we think we need to know. And notice what he says. Finally, he now tells us that ultimately this doesn't depend on us. There could be a sense in which I feel weighed down when I read a section of scripture like this and think, what do I need to do to change my own heart? What do I need to do to get rid of my dullness? And notice what the writer says. I think it's very interesting. He says there in verse 3, this we will do if God permits this we will do. There is a call for us to depend on the grace of God. If you feel your heart being dull to the things of Christ, if, you, if, if the things of God's word, if, if the meetings that are appointed for us to grow in the word are things we don't want to go to, and that's why we have different word-centered opportunities in this church, if we don't want to go to them, that's probably a mark that our hearts are dull. If we don't want to spend time in the Word, that's a mark. We need to go to God and we need to say, Lord, you have got to bring me to maturity. You have got to grow me. You have got to build me up. You have to give me a hunger for the menu of the gospel. You have to make me hungry for the more substantive things of the gospel. I think that there's no uncertainty. I'll say this, verse 3 sounds uncertain. There's no uncertainty that if you go to God and you say, Lord, my heart has been dull, my ears have been hardened, I do not want to grow more, I don't like being in the Word, I don't like trying to think deeply about the things of your Son, help me, he will do that. He will do that. You know, the Bible says, and I love this, that whatever you ask, Jesus says in my name, it will be done for you. He does not mean if you want to be president of the United States and you ask him, he's going to do that necessarily. He means the things... I don't know why anybody would want to be president of the United (laughs) States or ask God for that, but he means the things that he has revealed in his word for your good. If you ask in Jesus' name for those things, God will do that. That's a guarantee. That is a promise. I stand here as a minister of the gospel telling you, if you go and ask God for more fruit, more joy, more love, more holiness, more freedom from sin, a greater desire to be for a deeper knowledge in the things of Jesus, God will do that. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, according to my will, it will be done for you. And so we rely on grace. We rely on grace. Because at the end of the day, it's not because some guys are smarter than other people that they become great theologians. I believe many of our great theologians were men that put themselves prostrate on their face and God gave them grace. And they may be smarter now than other people because they did that. And it may not be just natural acumen and natural gifting. And if you do that, you will become a person who is exceedingly gifted and able to help others and to carry others along and to bring others along and to teach others and to edify the body. And, you know, I'll close with this. Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul there says that the church, every member does its part to edify the body in love. And then he says... That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But speaking the truth in love, we would be built up together in the truth, established by God's grace. That's what the call of Hebrews 5 is. That ultimately the end result would be your maturity for the benefit of others in the body, the growth of the kingdom, and our perseverance in grace. Let him who has ears to hear hear. Let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we are often dull in hearing and shallow in heart. We acknowledge our need for your forgiveness and cleansing and healing. We pray, our God, that you would mature us, every person in this congregation, every child, every adult, that you would give spiritually maturing grace. We pray that you would cause us to understand the deep things of Jesus Christ, not to be moved away from him, to keep our eyes fixed on him by faith, to love him more. Father, give us more love for you and more love for your Son in the Holy Spirit. Make us useful in your church, O oh God. We pray that you would establish us and keep us from all backsliding. We pray that if any here are unconverted, that... You would draw them in grace for the first time to your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.